Hi, this is Jim Swilly. Welcome to Metron Live. Metron is a Greek word that means sphere of influence. I believe in living your best life possible, and that's the reason for this podcast. This is my Metron. Now let me help you discover yours. We do a, if you don't know, we do a sunset meditation on the Saturday and a sunrise on the Sunday. Uh, why are y'all saying yes? What did I just say? And I've already forgotten that I just said. <laughs> what are the yeses and yes sure did? Hey, Earl. Are you back from the UK? Your pictures were uh, beautiful. Anyway, October 29th and 30th, meditation weekend number 16. Doubting me. Oh yeah, I well I did doubt you. Okay. Look, if you if you heard all the comments I got this morning just before going on, you'd be amazed at the clarity that I have. Uh, because uh, right up until broadcast time. Uh, people are sending me crazy messages that I just have to say compartmentalize that and stay in the zone uh, oh that's cool yes and exactly Ed oh the time changes east of Illinois interesting okay see I can learn without y'all all piling on me and judging me uh, I don't know where all that's coming from, but whatever. Uh, sorry, I didn't know every little thing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not as all powerfully omniscient, apparently, as some of y'all are. <clears throat> anyway, uh, that's going to be... Um... Oh, are you a Piedmont? Yeah, Kimberly, I don't know if we're going to make it back. We walked all the way there yesterday. I... I don't know. We may or may not be there for the parade. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But um, but it was fun yesterday. It was a good time. Um, anyway, I've been trying to make this announcement for the last five minutes. Uh, all right. Everybody else, anybody else got any jokes you got to say? Okay. I got it. I got it. I understand. All right. Your story has become tiresome. Anyway, um... We will be there, and then um, I guess it's the following Sunday. We'll be back in the theater, November sixth. Uh, we're in the theater the first. Actually, I think I'm hearing some some people going toward Pride right now. Hey, Brenda. Thank you, Danny. Um, we're in the theater first Sundays of the month, so we'll be there November 6th. I've got uh, uh, Johnny Almanza there, the the uh, cello player that I told you about a few weeks ago that uh, I've just heard out playing on the sidewalk, and I really loved his stuff, so. Uh, thank you, Stephanie. Stephanie, you and Danny and me are going to go start another church. Hey, Seth. Anyway, um, so remember, October... 29th and 30th, uh, meditation weekend, 16, and then November 6th, uh, in the theater at, uh, hey Jamie, at, uh, Landmarks Midtown Art Cinema, and then we'll be back in the theater, uh, first Sunday of December, and go ahead, I don't have all the details, uh, worked out yet, but we do have the venue booked. Uh, so go ahead and, uh, if you want to come to the Metron Christmas 
event uh, locked that in for Saturday, December 17th at the Red Light Cafe in Midtown Atlanta, and you're gonna you're gonna really enjoy that. Um, so anyway, there's all of that. Give me uh, give me some affirmations, and then we'll do some breaths, and then then I'm gonna alter history with the word I'm about to uh, speak. Okay? Yeah, I might not know what everything about the time zones, but I'm about to affect some amazing change that's going to help all y'all. Anyway, uh, we're going to start with an affirmation and move up to the I am. I am is the highest affirmation you can make. So we'll say, I am blessed. I am a blessing. I am. I am healed. I am a healing or I am healing. I am. I am joyful. I am joy. Oh, now see y'all got Doug Wentz making jokes. I, I bind the spirit of joking. I am. <laughs> I am serious. <laughs> no, I am. Uh, I am free. I am freedom. I am. It's coming, Linda. I am uh, whole. I am wholeness. I am. Um, I am uh, successful. I am success. I am. Uh, I am abundantly supplied. Yeah, Rosalind, right after that, I met him. It was it was a very, uh, you must not have heard when I talked about it. It was a very synchronistic meeting, and it was for him as well. It's it's definitely a, a cool connection. He's, you'll, you'll like this guy a lot. All right, that's enough of the affirmations. <clears throat> um, let's do some, a little bit of breath work. In through the nose, hold it, and out through the mouth. In, hold. Out. Beautiful. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Um, there's a verse of scripture in my strong in my spirit this morning. And, uh, when I do refer to the scriptures, I'm mostly in the gospels, some in the epistles. Uh, but once in a while I venture back to the old Testament and, um, in the, um, 51st Psalm, it's, uh, it's this, it's the song that David wrote when he was, uh, repenting for his situation, not just with, not just with Bathsheba, but with her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And um, I'm gonna give you a little backstory on that. I'm gonna make a couple of pop culture references. And, um, um, city noises. I don't mind, I'm not afraid of Leviticus, John. I get back there once in a while. I just don't. I just don't, uh, I just rightly divide it. I don't wrongly connect it and handle it. Anyway, um, 
I'm going to give you some backstory on this. Two verses particularly that I want to uh, acknowledge. One of them is, um, is Psalm 51, verse 16, where he says, Behold, you do not desire sacrifice or burnt offerings. If you did, I would gladly give them. I, I refer to that sometimes when I'm talking about sort of reimagining why Jesus died on the cross. I, I don't think it was a sacrifice for sin as we have been taught. I think it was the uh, fixing of a misperception. Uh, the Creator says to Adam, who told you you were naked? Jesus hangs naked on the cross and says, who told you you were unrighteous? So I don't believe it was, uh, and yes, I know he was wounded for our transgressions, but it was the transgressions that we perceived that we had. The, the same creator who could have said to Adam, who told you you were naked, could also say to us, who told you you were transgressor? Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. Who told you you were iniquitous? And I've talked about this at length, and that's why I share a lot of stuff that, uh, particularly, uh, one, of, um, one of the, well, I don't want to say particularly teacher, because I share a lot of teachers. Several teachers are really strong in this, that I share on uh, Facebook frequently. And um, so I'm, that's in no way to trivialize or diminish the cross or the atonement it is however to understand it and and not make it into something that it wasn't that even jesus didn't see it that way <clears throat> um because david says you don't really desire sacrifice he, he goes on to say the sacrifices of god are a, a broken spirit or, or you could say humility and transparency and uh uh so um I'll come back that, to that in a minute. But then if you back it up to verse 6 is really what I want to focus on. I'm going to come back to 16, but let me go, let me go to 6 for a minute. Um, uh, i got to stop reading y'all's comments. Let me, let, me get on, uh, let me get on task here. <clears throat> um, no, I'm not going to make the Christians mad. I'm going to set them free. Thank you. Anyway, um, he says, you desire truth in the, in verse six is, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And David, that, that's, that wasn't uh, that unusual for David to say. David had a tendency to be very introspective. He would say a lot of things like, create me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. And, uh, in the 19th Psalm, he says, who can understand his errors, cleanse me from secret faults and deliver me from, from presumptuous sins. So he was caught. I mean, if David were alive today, first of all, he probably be medicated for uh, being bipolar. And um, and secondly, uh, he probably be in some kind of therapy because he was he was constantly trying to figure out what made him tick and why did he do the things that he did. Paul had a little bit of that. Like in Romans 7, Paul would say things like, uh, the things I would do, I find myself not doing, and vice versa. And, and, and you know, there's, there's something to be said for the examined life. Not to constantly be down on yourself and have sin consciousness, but to 
own your mistakes and understand why you do what you do. That's a valid, that's a valid journey. There's some people, like if somebody's a true sociopath, they have no concept of that. Like they just think everything they do is fine. I don't believe I'm a sinner, but I also don't think everything I do needs to go unchecked. And I, I have to uh, take responsibility for mistakes that I make and turn them into teachable moments. And, and it doesn't make me fear God. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. But it does make me want to be the best version of myself. And if you, if you understand what the cross is not and what God's not doing, it actually sets you free to become a better person. Um, the very fact that he says, you desire the truth of the inner parts, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The fact that so many people just live reckless lives and then play the sinner saved by grace card. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, sinner saved by grace. That's, that's fine in theory, but what it actually does when, when, that's, when you don't believe in personal integrity, it actually creates this culture in which people don't have to have any kind of morality or sense of right and wrong or as long as they just say I'm covered by the blood uh, like um, like I remember when I was a kid and uh, we used to play um, we used to there was different versions of tag there was freeze tag and uh, all kind of different tag. but most if you ever played tag with your friends there usually was uh, something called base or depending on the kids in your neighborhood there's also called something called timeout and um, then there would be these other clauses like uh, in some among some kids you play with you'd be on base but there would be this this um, caveat to base like one two three get off my apple tree in other words you could only stay in base for uh, so long the one that for people like me who were raised you know, to me, smoking cigarettes was the worst thing you could possibly do. And uh, so I, when I'd be with church kids, sometimes we would play. I mean, it was this was considered so uh, dark and sexy that we had to say it in hushed tones. Like you play with church kids, the kind of church kids I grew up with. And they would say, do you all play cigarette tag? And, and you have to look around like, yeah. Well, what you do with cigarette tag is you'd run around and if somebody was about to tag you, you have to squat down and say the brand of a cigarette. You have to say, Paul Mall, Lucky Strikes, um, Marlboro. And if you could say that, then they couldn't touch you. And so you'd have to kind of know, this is back when they used to run cigarette ads on TV, so you were, you were more cognizant of brand names. But that was just considered like, I mean, you always repented after you played cigarette tag, because that was just... That was just so evil. And um, I, I find that people who misunderstand the need for personal truth and just always want to play the I'm a sinner saved by grace card, they're like people who play cigarette tag. It's like you you find them out in something and they're like, sinner saved by grace, sinner saved by grace. And, and so now you can't touch them. The other thing, the flip side of that I hate is when somebody really ticks you off and and gets a reaction out of you and then plays the Christian card on you. Oh, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. I hate, like, don't, don't manipulate 
the Jesus card. I really hate that. I've been doing that this for a long time. I see right through it. It's, it, it's like, it, it makes me avoid people when they do that. Jesus says to the woman at the well, who who's very candid about her life. She doesn't have any concept of being saved by grace. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you have, you have well said for you don't, you've had five husbands and you live with a man now who's not your husband. And the father is looking for people just like you. What people that are with lots of women who are with lots of different men. No people who tell the truth about their life and are candid about their life and transparent. That's when Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in transparency, uh, in spirit and authenticity. And, um, you know, one thing for whatever you say about gay pride and the, I didn't see as many angry preachers out there yesterday as I have in years past. What I did notice is the guys out there were a lot younger than I'm used to seeing. And this one guy had a big Jesus is Lord t-shirt and he's just telling everybody going to hell. And I thought, it's so ironic that you're saying Jesus is Lord and you're, pre you're blasting all these gay people because Jesus actually never said anything about same-sex relationships. It, probably it would serve you better to have a, a t-shirt printed up that says Moses is Lord. Uh, and, and, you know, be, consider yourself more of an Old Testament kind of guy. Anyway, um, what I noticed is just looking around how happy everybody seemed. Like everybody just seemed, and there's some people that had outrageous costumes on over the top. And I saw a couple of people that were dressed provocatively, but for the most part, it was just like lots of rainbows and lots of, you know, lots of colors, whatever. But I just, I just... It was interesting being in an environment where you can tell people don't feel judged here. This is a group of people who have lived their lives feeling judged in society, and now they're here among their peers. They're in, they, in, they're in their tribe. And there was just, I, I, it's, it's the one time of year I see the most joy in Piedmont Park when I go there. And, I, and pride's not even that much of my jam. I mean, I, I go there to you know, support the community, but it's, it's not really my thing. I don't, I don't have a booth out there anymore and I don't, I don't have no desire to march in a parade or anything, but it, it is kind of interesting to see when judgment is removed, uh, from people, just how happy and sweet and supportive and laughing everybody is. And not in an evil way, just in a way of like, Oh, this is what, this is what unjudged human beings sound like. We just listen to the sound of laughter. So um, why did why did David say you don't desire sacrifice, you desire truth in the end reports? All right, most of you are familiar with the story. I want to bring up uh, I want to bring up one aspect of the story that usually I have a tendency to leave out when I talk about it. David, uh, king of Israel walks out onto his rooftop, much like this is right here. Uh, houses at this time were uh, nearly always had rooftop patios that people used. And across the way, uh, he saw a woman who was either bathing on her roof or in a place where he could see her from his roof. And this was before porn. He stands there and watches her take a bath. And he's aroused by it. 
So, uh, and, and let me say, David already had a harem at this point. David had 10 children with uh, multiple women. That's why when the Old Testament talks about adultery, I'm like, what, what did y'all even consider adultery? Because I, I don't even know what your definition would have been. When people say, we need to get back to biblical marriage, I think, well, biblical marriage is a man having a harem and buying and selling women. That's why, you know, uh, I'm trying to keep politics out of this, but if you care about your marriage, you might want to think about who you vote for in the midterms because uh, there's a big attack about to come on uh, same-sex marriage. <clears throat> and um, that's why the president's trying to get it codified in Congress so that it can't be just overturned like previous things have been. So anyway, um, David says to one of his guys, who, who is she? And he, they say, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And he says, I want her, bring her here to the palace. Now you got to fill in the blanks. It just says that she went to the palace and slept with it. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, was that against her will? She had no choice in the matter because that was the king and she was a woman. Could be. Was she flattered by it and wanted, uh, you know, wanted to follow up on it? Could be. I, I don't know. The, I mean, basically, the biblical story just gives you bullet points. So you have to pretty much use your imagination to figure out, like, what, why did she go sleep with him? Did she go? Did she consider it a rape? Was she kicking and screaming or was she like? You know, what's up, King David? Let's go. And, I mean, I don't know. But um, so she does. She goes and sleeps with him, and she gets pregnant. Um, when David finds out that she's pregnant, it's not that he's that upset about the the pregnancy. Uh, David was very. I don't know if promiscuous is the word, libidinous. David was a very sexually charged man. Uh, when you read about his relationship with Jonathan, I don't think David was gay. I don't think he would identify even as bisexual. I think Jonathan was and their relationship. I mean, unless you're just, unless you are just intentionally naive, when you read about them, meeting and stripping down in front of each other and kissing each other and him saying your love was greater than the love of any woman. I mean, it's not rocket science. Uh, are you saying David was gay? No, I'm saying he, David was just sexual. He just was. He's one of those guys that uh, could maybe consider pansexual, like you, he could have sex with anybody. But clearly there was a, a bond between David and Jonathan that was tantamount to a marriage. And part of the reason Saul uh, was so furious with him was it was a, it was a very complicated relationship, and part of the anger was because of his relationship with his son Jonathan. One of these days, I'll get into it and really teach all of that, uh, but that's not where I'm going today. So let me, let me stay on uh, let me stay on point. So when David hears that um, Bathsheba's pregnant, again, we don't know how he knew that. Somehow she must have clearly, clearly gotten word back to David. Um, so what he does, instead of uh, taking care of it, you can say, well, abortion didn't exist back then. Yes, it did. Moses 
instituted abortion. He, Moses is the one that said, if a man thinks, back in the book of Numbers, he said, if, if a man thinks um, his wife has been unfaithful to him and the baby's not his, uh, she comes for the elders and drinks the stuff that makes her miscarry, and that's how she's revealed as a, an adulteress. And, uh, it, it certainly was uh, an existence in the Roman Empire. But what David does uh, and don't don't start comments about abortion because you're going to get you're, that's a red herring. You're going to get me in a different topic. That, I don't want to hear about Herschel Walker or any of that. Just save that for your pages. I have my own opinions about that, which it probably isn't hard for you to figure out. But that's not my purpose here today. Um. So what he does, and this is where the the wickedness really is. If, you know, if there's such a thing as degree of sins, it's the lusting after this other man's wife is one thing. Committing adultery with her is another thing. But then David reveals this part of himself that's just really dark, really manipulative. He, because Uriah is like this uh, leader of the army. Um, so he... Um, he sends word to Uriah and he says, let Uriah come home and have a weekend or a week with his wife. Let's, let's give him a break. And his intention was, is I'm sure if Uriah comes home, he's probably going to sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. And so when she, he find when he finds out that she's pregnant, he'll never suspect that it's not his baby. But what Uriah does, cause he's such a good guy. You remember how like um, um, John McCain, who was a hero, he was not, I mean, I don't care what anybody said, he's a hero. He was a hero. But, you know, John McCain, when he was a prisoner of war, could have uh, gone home earlier, but he didn't. He stayed because some of his men were still um, prisoners of war. And the fact that a sitting president could call him a failure is I would have never thought I would see that in my lifetime, but, but I have. Anyway, um, so what Uriah was that type of guy. Uh, so Uriah, he says, um, he says, I can't take a vacation while my men are at battle. So what he does is he goes into the palace where these quarters are, where would have been his, um, his ground zero for battle. And he stays there because in his mind, even though he's not in the heat of battle, he's still on duty. He just feels like it's bad optics for me to be home, you know, having a vacay with my wife while these other guys are out here getting slaughtered. So it shows you that that Uriah is really a good dude. So this this isn't just about the adultery piece because David had sex with a lot of people, male and female. Even the um, end of his life where he says he's, he's elderly and he's, uh, he's shivering in bed because his body temp drops. He specifically asks for a young woman to be put in his bed so that he can snuggle with. <laughs> I mean, this is after he's an old man He's still saying, I need a young chickie. If a nurse says, we can get you an old woman, he's like, no, I want to, I need a young woman. 
We can get you a blanket, an electric blanket, a water bottle, hot water bottle. We can turn up, turn up the thermostat. Nope, I want a young woman. So even after David was old and decrepit, he still was sexual. And even if he wasn't virile, he, he might not could have still done it, but he still wanted to be sex adjacent. I'm not just trying to be dirty. I'm trying to tell you the Bible like it is. Because if you read the Bible through G-rated lenses, you're not going to get these stories. You're not going to understand them. The people in the Bible were just like you. They're just people who had issues, who had perversions, who had uh, addictions. They, they were not walking around in some exalted state at all. And... Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, that doesn't work. And now apparently Bathsheba's far enough along in the pregnancy that he can't play it off. And Uriah, when he sees her, is going to know, well, that's not my baby because I haven't been with you. So um, David, for whatever reason, either gets panicky or because of his feelings for Bathsheba or both, he calls Joab and he says, send Uriah out to the very front lines of battle where I know he'll get, he'll just get killed. And that's what happened. And Uriah was sent to the front lines of battle and was in, instantly murdered. So David, you know, he's the king. So he's not, you know, at this point, conscience isn't that big of a deal with him but Nathan the prophet comes to him and says um, he says I want to tell you a story he said there was because David had you know when he was a boy he was a shepherd and Uriah says uh, there was a man who had vast flocks of sheep and there was this one guy all he had was one little lamb and the man who uh, had all the flocks and herds and more sheep than he could possibly count, takes the lamb from the kid who that was all he had. He said, what do you think should be done to him? Because he says he, he robs him of the only thing that he had. And um, David says, that, that man should be killed. Anybody who would do that should be killed. And Nathan says, it's you. You're, you're that guy. Because you've got more women than you could possibly sleep with. I mean, these men, God Almighty. Solomon, his son, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That would mean if you're going to have sex with each of those women, you'd have to have sex every night for at least three years with a different woman just to go through your entire uh, list of spouses. Um so a lot of this wasn't just about sex it was about power some of these uh potentates would take on wives and uh, because it was it was an alliance with another country so it wasn't it wasn't let me say this whatever your definition of marriage is don't use the bible for it because the bible's definition of marriage is not yours whatever you think marriage is that's not how the bible people would have thought of it at all so um, he saw you've got all these women, you have all these wives, any woman in the 
any woman you summon is going to come sleep with you if you ask for whatever her motives are. And uh, uh, Uriah, from what we can tell, again, you have to fill in the blanks, but Uriah was just married to this one woman. He said that's all he had. You took the one relationship. David, you've had so many relationships, they're meaningless to you at this point. You remember, um, and, and it seemed like, you know, the writers of the Bible is kind of on, God, on David's side about it. Remember when, um, when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into the city and David strips down and dances in his loincloth in front of the women and uh, one of his wives, Michal, looks out the window and she says, I know what you were doing. So you were just show it had nothing to do with the Ark of the Covenant. You were just flashing those young girls and trying to be sexy. And David says, oh, yeah, well, next time I'll, I'll take off the loincloth and dance naked in front of him. How about that? And the scripture says that Michal was struck barren. So the Bible, the Bible, I'm not saying God's a misogynist, but the Bible writers were men who wrote to men who had a very male patriarchal viewpoint of things. I'm not saying their words weren't inspired. I'm saying the inspiration was filtered through their cultural limitations. That's just a fact. I mean, I don't even have time to argue with you about that. That's just the truth. So if you want to believe in traditional marriage, that's fine. But don't, don't back it up with the Bible. Because believe me, uh, any married person on here right now probably would not like biblical marriage. So... Because um, in biblical marriage, a man could just write a writ of divorcement and be done with his wife. You're, thank you very much. You're excused. I no longer find you attractive. And she was just out of luck. I mean, he absorbed her dowry from her father, which made him wealthier. The more men married wealthy women, the wealthier they became. Because they. this is long before alimony or child support. There was no such thing. When Abraham kicked uh, Hagar and Ishmael out, there was no there was no visitation on weekends. They were just like, y'all figure it out. You're out in the desert. Bye. So, uh, you know, history has always been stacked in favor of men. And you see it in the scriptures. So um, David says, um, so Nathan says, you're the man. You're the one. You've got all these women at your disposal and now it's not the I'm not diminishing the sexual aspect of it but that really wasn't Nathan's point because of all the other people David had had sex with Nathan never had an opinion about that what what caused Nathan to come confront David is he said not only was this all this guy had this guy's a friend of yours and he's faithful to you I mean my God, this, this, the more you hear about this story, David, the worse it gets. It'd be different if it was even the wife of an enemy. You'd be like, I guess I showed you, I took your wife away from you. No, this is a guy that loves you and serves you and is faithful to you. So you take his wife and you take his wife and then technically have him executed. Like, Good grief. And then it says, because David repents, but the but it does not say, uh, um, for all of you pro-lifers, it does not say that uh, 
Bathsheba miscarried, it said, God killed the baby to punish David. That's, I mean, the, the Bible is full of um, everything from Moses and the Exodus to Jesus and King Herod. I mean, uh, infanticide, uh, baby slaughter was rampant in, uh, in that part of the world at that time. But there it specifically says that uh, um, God killed the baby. And uh, now they went on to conceive. The, nec the, uh, the next child they conceived was Solomon. And he became, you know, he wrote the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I'm saying all that to say this. When David says, you desire truth in the inward parts, this wasn't some kind of superficial, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, that I lusted after this woman. You know, I'm just a man. It wasn't that. He was saying, he was having this epiphany about his own personal darkness, like, Wow, how did I become this guy? Like, the the adultery was one thing, but then to have this man, this good man, I I mean, that's as dark as it gets. I took all he had, and then I had him killed. Not once. Uh, no, I had him killed. I tried to set him up for uh, believing that uh, my child was his. And then I had him killed. I mean, shoot, David. I mean, if David were a traveling evangelist today, you couldn't have him at your church. He could be saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And you'd be like, I don't know, David. I just can't get past the the adultery thing. Maybe I could forgive you for. But killing Uriah the Hittite, who was a good dude, who served you and supported you. I just don't think I can get past that. It was a different time then. Um, and David wasn't running for political office. But um, here's what I want to say about that. There's a... Um, all right, well, let me tell you where kind of the catalyst for this was. Uh, yeah, it was. It, it was, Doug. If, if you believe that was God, that's what it says. It was It was ugly, the way the, way the baby died. Um, and you could say, oh, well, good enough for them. They reap what they sowed. Or you say, wow, God did that? I, I don't know. See, I don't believe everybody in the scripture who says God told them something. I don't think God told them that. I think that's what it's like. Uh, I think I quoted her last week. Susan B. Anthony said, the thing I have a problem with people saying God said so and so is it sounds so much like something they would say. Um, but anyway, last night. Uh, we we watch a lot of series. Um, I have like all the apps and Apple and Hulu and all of them. And when I'm with my boys, we're constantly comparing things. Like, have y'all seen so and so? And they'll tell me something I'm like, nah, I'm not. Like like I was never a Game of Thrones guy. Like that's not that's not my jam. I don't really care about uh, you know fantasy like that. I do care about real stories. And even when I'm in the mood for it, I'm I'm even uh, very drawn to true crime stories. Not because I'm trying to be see gratuitous violence or something, but I I am curious what makes people tick. Like how does how does somebody get conditioned to become a monster? And so last night, I think there's about four episodes that are out already. We watched 
and I'm not necessarily recommending it to you. I'm just saying I watched it. Um, this, uh, it's a true story called A Friend of the Family. And it's a story about this family in the 70s who had this guy in their life who was a neighbor who apparently, from what little I've read, of, I'm, not, I'm trying not to read too much about it because I want to wait and just watch the series. He, he abducted their 12-year-old daughter not once but twice. And um, it's, it's very interesting to see how little by little this guy, and these were super religious people. Uh, it doesn't say what their uh, religion was, but their whole life revolves around church. And um, I mean, they call this guy Brother B because he's, they know him from church. And it's, it's really interesting to see how he got inside all of their heads, and specifically the 12-year-old girl, because from what little I've read about it, she actually, the real woman as an adult, actually introduces the series and says, believe it or not, this actually happened to me. And the reason I've uh, consented to um, uh, promote this is I think there are people who just don't believe this kind of thing could happen to them. And I, I want it to be a cautionary tale to show you uh, what what um, uh, can happen. And here's, this is the point. The, the, the girl uh, loved horseback riding and he had horses. And so they kind of initially bonded, bond, initially bonded around that. Started spending more and more time with each other. But what's really interesting is she was like a big um, sci-fi nerd. Like she really believed in extraterrestrials and all this kind of stuff. So when he, he, he drugs her and kidnaps her, and takes her away in a um, motorhome, and when she wakes up, she's in handcuffs. Uh, but but he doesn't just go right in and rape her or anything like that. It's he has this speaker that uh, makes it, his voice sound like the voice of aliens, and that they he tells her this whole thing. He's got this whole elaborate thing. When she wakes up, he's in there. He's got a bloody head, and he said, he said, what happened? You know, she says, I don't know. This these voices were speaking about the the uh that i have a purpose and everything and he says so what he does he says that um you cannot tell anybody this but uh your father is an alien from another uh and he don't ever touch him and you have a secret mission and if you violate this mission your your sibling they, they said your siblings are going to be killed he tells her all this stuff that as an adult you listen to and you think how the heck does she fall for that? But if you're a 12 year old kid who trusts people and you're already prone to believe something like that, I mean, the last, um, the, uh, last episode I watched last night is she's saying her prayers and she, cause she, she finally gets back home. He does this whole thing where he takes her to Mexico and they, he marries her and they have to have the marriage annulled and all. But in the prayer, she's she's still pray, she's still praying, and she says, in the name of Jesus Christ, she's still praying to like, please don't kill my siblings, because she's she's under the assumption that um, if she violates this thing that these aliens have told her to do, she's been called for a special purpose, that everything will everything will go to hell in her life. And I I was looking at that, I thought, wow, that's so interesting. And anybody that um, 
you know, knows anything about how pedophiles work, there usually is a grooming process that goes on. And I use the word grooming very carefully because it's used a lot now in ways that it doesn't mean. Like if you teach children not to be homophobic, that's not grooming them to become gay. You can't turn somebody gay. But pedophiles, many times the, the really smart ones, know how to kind of build trust with a child and um, tell them that if they ever tell the secret, this terrible thing's gonna happen. So my point is, once that lie is established, once this lie was established in this little girl's head, um, she didn't believe her parents. She didn't believe anybody because, you know, the lie resonated with what she already wanted to believe. And I'm fascinated with that concept. You know, a lot of a lot of famous uh, movies and plays are based on something called the big reveal. Like there'll be something that's that somebody thought the whole time. And then at a certain point, it's like a plot device at a certain point the main character realizes that they haven't known the truth and that changes everything. I mean, that's, that's sort of typical, uh, plot writing. Two that come to mind, uh, one is going with the wind. I know going with the wind is not politically correct these days. I don't think it should be done away with. I think if you do away with going with the wind, for one thing, you lose Hattie McDaniel's amazing performance. She was the first African-American to win an Oscar. Uh, I do think it should be shown with a um, uh, disclaimer that this is not an accurate depiction of slavery in the South. But I, I, I like I'm I'm not um, I don't support book banning and and uh, uh, censorship and that kind of stuff. So I under, I understand the problems with going to win. That being said, one of the main plot devices in it is. Uh, that the whole thing, the whole thing evolves around uh, Scarlett O'Hara being under the assumption that she she really thinks she loves Ashley Wilkes, and little by little she really believes he loves her, but he's married to somebody else and she's married to somebody else, and so depending on how you look at it, his character Ashley Wilkes. You could say he definitely led her own sometimes. Like there was one time he came home from war, war and uh, they kiss and he, she says, please tell me you really love me. And he goes, yes, I love you, but because of Anna and, you know, like, I don't know. And Leslie Howard, the guy who portrayed him was an older British actor who played him, which I don't know what he hated being in that movie. I don't know why he got uh, cast for it, because just as movie stars, it's it's hard to believe that Clark Gable could be waiting for you at home and you're wanting to be with uh, Leslie Howard. But anyway, that's a casting thing. The rest of the movie, I think, is brilliant how it's cast. But the point is, at the end of it, when Melanie is dying and Ashley's really played by Olivia de Havilland, who died a couple of years ago at the age 104, um, he's like sobbing over her death and um scarlet stands up and she goes you really love melanie don't you and he said yes i do like how did like he's saying like how did you not know that and so you can see the light comes on and she's like so all this time i believed in something that wasn't even real and so once that lie is um 
exploded. Then the other lie that she really doesn't love Rhett Butler, that's exploded as well. Suddenly she realizes, oh, wait a minute. What am I doing? I don't love Ashley Wilkes. I love Rhett Butler. I'm going to go home and tell him. That's right. Once I tell him that I love him, uh, everything will be fine. By that time, it's too little too late. And that's when he says the famous line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Because she, it's like she's done too much damage to the relationship. It's a, it, it's irreconcilable differences. Most of the great Hollywood love stories do not end with the two main characters getting together. Casablanca doesn't. I mean, that's it, it's usually uh, unrequited love that makes for uh, for whatever reason. Very rarely do the and they lived happily ever after things do well at the box office. At least back in the day, that was the case. So, um, so that's one case of somebody being sold on a lie. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's not the truth that makes you free. It's the truth that you know. If you don't know something, then you have a whole other reality. The, the, uh, the January 6th insurrection was completely based on a lie that people were being groomed for months before the election. The, the previous president kept saying, they're going to steal the election, they're going to steal it, they're going to steal it. And he said it long enough. Hitler said, if you, if you say a lie long enough, people will believe it. And then finally people believed it, and we nearly lost democracy that day. And, and that's not hyperbole to say that. Um, it, it wasn't just it wasn't just another riot. It wasn't people say, well, this is like Black Lives Matter. No, Black Lives Matter riots were not a threat to democracy. It's a totally different thing. So um, because it, that, that was an attempt at an overthrow of an election. So um, um, th the idea is you got to sell the people on a lie. Before Putin sends people into the Ukraine, he has to tell them that there's Nazis in the Ukraine and that we need to get rid of the Nazis. There aren't any Nazis there, but it's a lie. And the people, if they're already predisposed to believe something, and then you tell them something that confirms what they already kind of think, then you're good to go. Once you get in somebody's head with a lie, you got them. If you can, get, if you can convince somebody to believe a lie, they're yours. Like, I remember... Um, I never watched Dr. Phil, but I, one day, I, I guess it was on YouTube, I saw something where this woman, she was in like her late 70s, early 80s, and she met some guy online uh, who sold her a bill of goods and said he was going to come to America and marry her, and she had completely exhausted all of her uh, life savings. She had nothing to leave her children. She had totally believed the lie. So her children had said, it's... There's no guy coming to marry you. It's some guy sitting in an internet cafe in a third world nation writing to you. She just wouldn't believe it. So they bring her on the air to prove to her that that guy's not real and it's a scam. And they reveal the guy, they track him down. Sure enough, she sees there is indisputable proof that there's no guy that loves you that's coming to marry you. This is a, a scam that he's running on a lot of older women. She looks at it and says, I don't care. I know he's real. And one of these days he's going to come get me. And I thought, well, that's the thing about it. People want to believe a lie. I mean, that's all of her children 
on national TV showing her online. No, here's the guy's name. We tracked down the IP address. This is the computer he came, it, it went from. Here's stuff he sent to other people along the same lines. She still didn't believe it because there was a romantic in her that wanted to believe that was true. So people believe what they want to believe, but the other plot device um, that I will mention was um, another movie. It was uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962. Uh, during the 60s, there was this thing that happened. A lot of these actresses who had been really major box office draws of the 30s and 40s, once they were in their 60s and 70s, they just could not get any work. And so in 1962, uh, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who were kind of considered, I mean, legends, but not working, sort of, sort of like has-been icons. They made this movie, and they, it started off this genre, the, the French term is Grand Guignot, of these older women doing these kind of like schlock um, uh, horror movies. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Who Slew Annie Rue, uh, What's the Matter with Helen, I mean just one after another. And so it became a big it became a big cinematic fad in the 60s for these older reputable actresses to be running around in these many of them B movies you know like cutting people's heads off and doing all this kind of stuff but you know you got to pay the bills so um, in many of those movies um, are based on somebody believing a lie um, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was based on that too, but the one I, the one I want to specifically um, focus on is um, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis play. They they both have been actresses. Uh, Betty Davis's character had been like a child star, and then her star kind of faded, and then Joan Crawford's character Blanche became like a big box office draw, like in the 30s, I guess. So now they were both older women who were uh, pretty much housebound in uh, in their house in Beverly Hills um, and the reason they have this uh, relationship is um, it, it shows you at the beginning of it it shows you this car coming up uh, to, and a person to some gates and a person gets out and unlocks and then somebody comes and drives the car into the person so you go through the whole movie thinking that sometime in the past Betty Davis character Betty Davis's character ran over Joan Crawford's character crippling her for life and now she she can't walk and Betty Davis's character is bound by duty and by guilt to have to wait on her until they both die she's her servant and so it, it picks up with Betty Davis becoming um, kind of becoming unhinged and not wanting to do that anymore. So fast forward to the end. I won't go through the whole thing, but at the end, finally, Joan Crawford's character is dying, and Betty Davis drags her out to Malibu, and they're laying out on the beach, and and uh, Joan Crawford's character's just got a Blanche has just got a little bit of time to live, and uh, she says. Um, she says, Jane, there isn't much time. I need to tell you something. And she says, what is it? She says, I know you think you crippled me, 
but you didn't do it. I did it. I did it to myself. I was mad at you. I, I'm the one that had the accident. And when the cops got there that night, you were drunk. They just thought you had did it. Yeah, you had done it. They pinned it on you, and I just never told them otherwise. And Betty Davis um, delivers this line. At first, when she starts telling her that, because by this point, the Jane character is just, she's about over the edge, you know, just lost her mind. And so Joan Crawford's laying there on the beach dying, and she's telling her this stuff, and Betty Davis goes, stop. Like, I don't want to hear the truth. And then she looks at her and she says, so you mean all this time we could have been friends? It's like, it's, I know it's schlocky and whatever, but it's just, it, it's such a sad thing to think that these two women who have been forced together to live all these decades under a lie, something that didn't even happen. And which the, the amount of regret that she as an actress shows like our lives could have been so different if we just hadn't believed this lie because all these years I've become like this crazy old alcoholic woman because I think I ruined your life and I didn't even do it and so when it says I said all of that to say God's spirit source higher power just desires truth in the inward parts. Don't be afraid of the truth. How would that have related to David? I don't know. W wouldn't it have been better if David had brought Uriah in and said, I got to tell you something. I had a, a, a affair with your wife. That baby is my baby. I don't know if you can ever forgive me. If you can, I'll take care of him for the rest of his life. I mean, if he had had some kind of... Um, taking care of his own actions. And when David said, I wish I could just make a sacrifice, you don't desire sacrifice. I wish I could just say, I plead the blood. And he does say it. He says, purge me with hyssop, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. But, it, but the real focal point is, the bottom line is you desire truth in the inward parts. God is looking for people who actually lives lives of integrity and not just go around ruining other people's lives and then say, time out, sinner saved by grace. Ah, you can't touch me, time out. I, stop using the sinner saved by grace card to justify bad behavior. And if you've done bad things, own them, especially if you've hurt people and destroyed lives, whatever. Sometimes you, people say, oh, the truth's just too painful for me to face. Let me tell you something about the truth. The truth is going to be there whether you face it or not. You can try to take slavery out of the, out of, uh, history books it's not going to change the fact that it came out in a few days i think i think this movie till is if it's not out yet it's about to be it's in it's in limited release the story of emmett till the uh black kid from chicago in 1955 who was brutally murdered uh by these men because a woman who said he whistled at her he's for a white woman he's 14 years old and in later years, she even admitted that she made it up. He didn't even do it. Not that it would justify it. It's just like there was n no truth to it. And the big, the big thing about this, because really you could argue that without Emmett Till, there, there probably wouldn't have been a Rosa Parks. And without a Rosa Parks, there probably wouldn't have been a Martin Luther King Jr. Because 
the the Montgomery bus boycott happened in 55 and um, King was pastoring Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery at that time and there was a lot of upheaval in 55 because of the Emmett Till death the Emmett Till death uh, emboldened people like Rosa Parks to start refusing Jim Crow laws and that gave King the catalyst to use his platform to usher in the civil rights movement. The thing about my point in bringing that up is um, however they killed that boy, they, I mean, it was gruesome, gruesome. And his mother, when they brought his, uh, wherever they brought his casket to, she said, open the casket. I want them to, I, I, and people said, you cannot show, you can't show him his corpse to people. This is, this is horrible. And she says, I want them to see how ugly racism is. And she forced them to open his casket and thousands of people came there. I mean, people were fainting. They were throwing up. It was horrible. You find pictures of it online. And her point is, is this situation is never going to get better until you see this is the face of racism. This is what racism does. And this is racism that's based on a lie. That boy wasn't threatening that white woman and didn't even whistle at her. So you can run from lies all you want to. If, if you don't confront a lie in your life, the lie eventually will come back and bite you. It's either either you take authority over the lie or the lie is going to take authority over you. And if you see that there's deep manipulation in your heart like David had, the, the manipulation and the, the plotting to kill Uriah was way worse than the sex. And um, until you can recognize that, wow, I was really capable of doing that and, and own it and make it right. And sometimes you need to apologize, even if the person has nothing to do with you. They don't accept the apology. The fact is you do what you can to make it right. Stop using the, I'm a sinner saved by grace, dodgeball, and actually be a good person. Be a good neighbor. Be a good citizen. Uh, be somebody reputable. When people say, don't you want to work with, you know, like if, if you see there's a cross or a fish on their business card don't you want to work with them because they're christians hell no i'm i know too many christians i know too many people in the ministry i want to i want to work with people that basically know what they're doing i don't need a christian to fix my car i need a good mechanic that i can look on yelp and people say yeah he does a good job and doesn't overcharge you that's what i'm looking for so um i'm i'm only again i'm not trying to take the cross away from you I'm trying to make I'm trying to make people understand that was not Jesus's intention to say you say well he died for the sins of the world okay fair enough I agree I am a Christian universalist I believe in ultimate reconciliation so if you say yes he died to take away the sins of the world I mean John the Baptist said that that's not that's not some new fad that's I mean the apostle John said uh, he takes away this uh, the, he's the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only but of the whole world Paul wrote to Timothy and said he's the savior of all men especially then that believe so yes the 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 case has been made that positionally 
Jesus forgave the sins of the world. I'm not talking about stuff that's going to send you to hell. I'm talking about stuff that's going to make you a good person and give you a good life. And that you don't stop, and that you stop living your life in some fantasy that's based on wrong information and a lie. The thing, this is what I've learned about facing the truth. And one reason, if people ask me like, how are you so confident? Because I don't have anything to hide. I've told my truth. And uh, even yesterday walking around Pride, I'm not, you know, LGBTQ people are not monolithic. They're all over the map. I mean, there's even gay Republicans there yesterday. The, the log cabin uh, Republicans, they had their booth, uh, which that's, you know, it's America. That's that's their journey. Fine. Uh, I'm looking at all these people. And I think I probably would never wear that and I probably would never do that. What I the feeling of connection that I have with you, though, is, wow, it's good to be free, isn't it? It's good just to tell your truth, own your truth. People say, oh, the world's turning gay. No, it's not turning gay. There's an element of this culture that always has been, always will be. You're just hearing about it more. There's no gay agenda. You can't recruit. You can't make people gay. It's just people are telling the truth. They're just tired of saying, I'm, I'm tired of you telling me that I can't get benefits. I mean, even yesterday, um, if, you, if you've noticed, um, I'm back in my previous glasses. It's a long, boring story. I, I had those clear frames that that didn't work out, so I'm I'm back to I'm back to square one, getting the other frames that I want, which it's going to be a few days before they're in. But I didn't know I was going to do this yesterday. So when I called Pearl Optical, she said I've left you a couple of messages, the frames that you were wanting that's not going to work. I said I don't have. I'm not saying you're lying, but I don't have I have no record of you and I said I have you guys on my phone. So anyway, I could tell it was one of, it was one of those uh, she said I said. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> she's like, "Well, I sent them." I'm like, "Well, I didn't get them." Anyway, um she told me one of my options. She says, "You could go ahead and get the the new frames that you've ordered, but you'd need to get a new um eye exam." Uh and start the whole process over. I said, okay, fine. When do I, she says, well, if you want to, I can see if the doctor can see you right now. I said, yeah, sure. Great. So Ken was waiting out in the car. I walked, I ran out. I said, do you mind just waiting a minute that they're going to give me an eye exam and I'm just going to order new glasses. He was fine. So, um, she says, what's your insurance? I said, so I'm, I'm fumbling through my billfold. I can't find my insurance specifically my insurance card for eyes i said i should be in your system she said so she looked she said who's kenneth marshall i said oh that's my husband i'm on his interest oh, okay no problem and i thought thank god that i can just go have a eye exam and not have to explain to this woman your husband what do you mean it's like that we live in a world where she realizes that's just not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just another thing. It's just another part of life. And I, I, anytime that happens, I'm always so grateful that, thank God, we the people actually means we. Nobody's trying to take anything away from any other people group. 
but just nobody's even asking for special privileges just what everybody else gets and um that's why i tell you i ain't marching in this parade yet but if they if people get in office to try to take say i ain't married uh your bishop's going to get loud and is going to embarrass many of you some <laughs> any of you that are on the fence right now uh you, you might not survive that because i'm not uh that hits really close to home you're not going to tell me i'm not really married so my exhortation to you is uh god desires truth in the inward parts not church truth not public truth the re integrity is what you do when you're by yourself god desires integrity and that's what you need to work on okay and you can say well you did away with the blood of jesus no i didn't i'm just saying the blood of jesus has nothing to do with that that has to do with personal uh decisions that you make about your own personal life it has to do with your thoughts your words your actions not just being an absolute jerk and then saying ha sinner saved by grace ha you can't tag me i'm sick of that stuff and furthermore you know, I'm loath to quote Jesus, but I, I get the idea. I mean, I've worked for him my entire life. I get the idea that Jesus is pretty tired of it, too. So, uh, y'all are very chatty today because I haven't read your comments, but I'm seeing them in my peripheral vision. Um, if you want to support the ministry, go to Bish in the Now, like short for Bishop, dot com. It's simply clicking uh, a button. It's totally easy. Thank you for those of you that still do that. That way we're able to, can, well, I don't have to sell you on the idea. It, it's a good ground, so into it. If you want to give to me personally, I have all the, I have all the uh, apps and, um, and I always appreciate that. Remember, uh, if you want to go to um, uh, Meditation Weekend 16, you don't know anything about it, scroll up to my cover photo. All the information is there. And I'm looking forward to seeing many of you three weeks from today. All right, I love you. And uh, I'll be back on tomorrow night, as far as I know. I'll be back on tomorrow night at 11, 11 p.m. And thanks for all your good words. It really means a lot. I really appreciate that you're as verbal as you are. Uh, it's, it, I never take it for granted. That's why I screenshot your comments and post them, because they just, they just really raise my vibration, and it means a lot. All right. I love you. Talk to you later. Peace.